The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We'll be chatting to Janina Balchin about an all-English vermouth made right here in Sussex and travel councillor Matt Newman will be offering up some inspiration for our trips abroad this year. Then, in our look back at the best bits from Meridian FM from the last couple of weeks, Paul Tolmy hears from local author Kizzy Petit about her new book. Carrie Overton will be chatting to Ashley Salter about New Year's resolutions. And Samantha Day talks to personal stylist Ellie Cooper-Simpson. All coming up in this edition. The UK has seen a resurgence in spirit and winemaking in recent years with a bewildering number of distilleries and producers. Now, the Sussex countryside is home to the first ever all-English vermouth made exclusively from English wine and botanicals. I'm delighted to be joined by Janina Balchin from In The Loop Drinks to tell us more. Janina, welcome to the show. Can you start by telling us what vermouth is? Hi, Tim. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, sure. So vermouth is fortified wine. Um, the legal definition is actually aromatized fortified wine. So it sits in the same category as port and sherry. Uh, but the thing that separates it from them is that aromatization step. OK, that's interesting. So apart from being UK based, what makes In The Loop different to some of the other vermouth producers out there? So we focus um, solely on using English wine as the base wine. So vermouth legally has to be at least 75% wine. Um, so it's really important to us that we use a really nice base wine because it is 75% of the finished product. Um, so yeah, we focus exclusively on using English wine. And we have uh, one of our products at the moment, which is completely English botanicals as well. So it's the UK's first all English vermouth in that respect. And we use fresh botanicals. So I grow a lot of things on site uh, by the winery um, and they are literally picked and washed and put in fresh. So things like bay leaves, oregano, lemon verbena, that's all grown on site. Um, and it just adds a completely different dimension to the vermouth. So am I correct in saying that vermouth is a wine product then? Yeah, it's made in the winery. Uh, what it actually is, is a fortification step. Um, and for that, I use almost pure alcohol. Uh, so just to give you a basic idea of how it works, um, I work with the wineries around me for the base wines um, and I go to the winery um, and collect that wine and bring it back to my winery. Uh, so that's why we called In The Loop Drinks because we keep English wine in the circular economy. So we keep it in the loop. So that's the whole basis of the business. Uh, we're sort of utilizing this wine that was coming from other wineries. So it tends to be wine... Um, that is sort of surplus requirement for them. Um, in a lot of cases, it's too flavorful to be English sparkling wine because um, you need quite a neutral base wine to make English sparkling wine. So if it's too flavorful, um, a lot of the time it actually makes a really good vermouth. So that's the stuff I, I tend to use. So I will go to that winery, pick up their wine, bring it back to my winery, um, and then I fortify and flavor it. So this fortification, like I said, is using really strong alcohol. I use that alcohol to extract the botanical flavor from the botanicals that I have grown. And then I put the alcohol in the wine. So it's kind of like a fortification and a flavoring step in one. Um, so that's the basic process of how I make it. Um, it's slightly more complicated than um, I've sort of described, but that's the absolute sort of backbone of it. Um, and then after that, there's uh, various processes to, to make a polished high quality product. So uh, there's some fining that goes on, there's some filtration, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, the, the basis, I suppose, is that actually we are a winery, we're not a distillery. A lot of people think of vermouth as a spirit and this sort of mystical product. But actually, yeah, it's, um, it's fortified wine. And in my opinion, the best person to be making that is a winemaker. Well, indeed. So what first started you down this path then? Why vermouth? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a niche product. So um, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a funny one, but um, I actually started life as a food scientist. Um, so I completely went around the houses on this one. Um, I did a food science degree and was in the um, in product development in the food industry. So you've probably eaten something at some point that I have developed or at least stuck my finger in. Um, and after that, I, I gave that job up to move down to Sussex and go to Plumpton College. And I did a master's degree in enology and viticulture. So I learned how to make wine and grow grapes and things. And I was working in a medium-sized English winery alongside doing that. Um, I did that for a few years, and then I gave that up to run my own business. Um, and 
the reason I went for vermouth was because I could see how much English wine uh, was popping up everywhere, how many vines were going in the ground, and it's sort of grown year on year. Um, and sort of thinking, okay, well, those vines, for example, the first record year we had was 2018 in terms of the amount of vines that were planted in the UK. I was like, okay, well, where's all that wine going to go? You know, all of those vines are going to come online in 21, um, going to start making wine. And it's like, you know, it's got to go somewhere. Um, and actually, vermouth is a, almost like a natural byproduct of the industry. You know, like I said, it tends to use those portions of wine that um, might not be quite right for making things like English sparkling wine. So it's almost a natural byproduct. And I just thought, well, if you look at old world wine countries like France, Italy, Spain, they have a really strong vermouth culture. And that's because they've had wine in those countries for a long, long time. And that's only a matter of time before that happens in the UK. Um, you know, the English wine industry is growing, it's getting stronger. Um, and vermouth, in my opinion, is just something that will naturally grow with it in this country. And we'll start to see more and more English vermouth pop up. So that was kind of the basis of why I started the business. Um, I'd always wanted to run my own business and um, vermouth because it goes in some really great cocktails. And especially through lockdown, uh, we started focusing more on cocktail making, although I did actually start the business before lockdown. Um, but I could kind of see the potential for how to make the product, but then also how to sell it, which is crucial, really. Now, you mentioned there that you've run cocktail classes in the past. Is that something that you're hoping to do again in the near future? Oh, I'd love to do some more. They were such fun. Um, so I basically, uh, because I run such a small winery and I can't have any visitors on site at the moment, I have been working with various um, distilleries and doing masterclasses at their places. Um, and then we do sort of, um, yeah, cocktails that use my vermouth and their products and, and make some really good stuff. Um, and they've been great fun. So, uh, so far I've worked with Madam Jennifer Distillery down in Hove um, and with Brighton Jim. And uh, yeah, I'd love to do some more. So uh, watch this space for 2023. Now, speaking of cocktails, vermouth is obviously an ingredient in the famous martini. Uh, but what else can you mix it with? And can you enjoy it on its own even? Yeah, so I've um, tried to create a range of what I would call sipping vermouths. So they are um, actually really nice on their own because they are not too bitter and they're nice and flavorful. So my vermouth style is quite wine led. Uh, so it's very much like sitting and enjoying a nice sherry or a port in that respect. Um, but yeah, so classically you would use a dry white vermouth to make a martini and then uh, a sweet red vermouth to make a cocktail like a Negroni or a Manhattan. Um, my vermouths also go well just with tonic as a long drink, you know, just as a spritz with Prosecco or something. Um, but yeah, you could easily just drink them on their own, and, and I do regularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, what styles of vermouth do you currently produce? So at the moment, we have what I would call the core range, uh, so the core style of vermouth. So most cocktails would call for either a dry white or a sweet red vermouth. So those are the two vermouths that uh, we have at the moment. So the dry white vermouth is uh, nice and dry, so nine grams per litre of sugar, so that really is rather dry. Um, and then there's lots of fresh herbs in there. So it's quite uh, kind of, yeah, fresh and um, uh, green, I suppose, would be the word, sort of herbal. Um, and then the red that we have does taste quite a lot like port. Uh, you can taste the English red wine, base wine. Uh, it's got some really nice sort of juicy fruitiness about it. And I put some uh, fair trade vanilla and tonka beans in that one. So it's got some nice level of, um, yeah, some nice aromatics in there. Um, I would happily just drink it on its own, but it does go really well actually with grapefruit juice um, to make sort of like a grapefruit aperitivo. Yeah, there's lots you can do with them. Now, with your background in food science, you probably had a bit of a head start here, but how long did it take you to perfect some of those recipes? Yeah, so there was a lot of trial and error right at the beginning. Um, so I started the business in 2019 and I was really pushing to get a product to market so I could start getting customer feedback. So I, um, I basically created a limited company and I sold shares to raise investment. But that investment didn't come through until November 2019. So I remember that Christmas just being really stressful, really stressful. I basically focused on one product first. So I did um, dry white vermouth was the first one I went for. And I actually had that bottled to get to markets in January 2020. So I did markets January, February, March until everything shut down. And I got a lot of customer feedback that way, which is the absolute most important thing when you're developing a product. Um, I mean, it's all very well if you like it, but yeah, I need, you know, I needed to make sure that it wasn't just me. <laughs> so um, so I, got, um, I got out to some markets before everything shut down. 
Um, and it's just been constant trial and error from there and sort of just working on previous successes. Uh, there's been a lot of learnings. Uh, I think the most important thing has probably been how to improve quality control moving forward, um, sort of, you know, bottle stability and things, because uh, the flavors were pretty on point from the start. But it's just making sure that those those um, the product is exactly how I want it to be when you open it, which could be, you know, six months after I bottled it or a year or whatever. I, I have no control in that. So it's just making sure that the vermouth continues to be as I want it to be when it's in the bottle. That's probably been the, the most important thing for me. Uh, yeah. Quality control. Definitely. That's great. So what's next for the business? uh yeah i've got a, i don't know how much i can say i've got a few uh projects that i'm sort of currently working on um i, I think the most important thing for me with this stage we are with the business is actually getting the product into one of the major retailers um and there's only one that i'm really interested in and they have fed back that they actually really like the product so that might end up being a really big project for this year for us um i yeah that's yeah that's probably the biggest thing for for this year um, and then also trying to improve my online sales as well, um, because we are a really, really small team. Uh, so being able to sell online is, is quite important to us, um, especially the way that things are going sort of with the economy and everything. It's, it's good to kind of broaden your market, as it were. Now, you mentioned that the whole ethos behind In The Loop is to keep wine flowing in the circular economy. Sustainability is therefore quite important to you. What sort of things are you doing in this area and, and why is it so important? Um, I think it's, it's important. Well, it's not, it's very important for us, but it, it really should be important for everybody. Um, I mean, you know, so what I'm trying to do basically is get the business to net zero and we are on a journey to net zero because in my opinion, it is an inevitability. Every business in the UK will have to be net zero. Um, because it's just the way that, that things are going you know we can't continue to consume as we are we have to start putting things back into the system so when I first started the business I was very sort of focused on keeping English wine in the circular economy the way that I grow botanicals you know we run out of a solar powered vineyard a solar powered winery rather um, I use cellulose tamper proofs and there's things that I put in place right from the start but there's a lot more that I know I need to do so it's a continual process uh, the biggest focus for me at the moment is the bottles that we use because that is the main source of our carbon footprint. So it's trying to work out how to reduce that um, in the yeah in the in the bottles that we use because they're glass bottles, which is quite an energy hungry process even if you use 100% recycled glass. Uh, so that's the biggest thing for me. But it is it's super important and it, not just for for my business but really for everybody's. So most importantly, tell us where can people go to find out more and buy your products. So um, all the information about the products and the businesses on our own website. So www.intheloopdrinks.co.uk. Um, we do sell everything through Amazon, uh, which has been great, actually, especially the, all the issues we've had with delivery because Amazon fulfilled it themselves. So that takes that stress off of me. Um, saying that, we also do fulfill products to the website. Um, we are on Master of Malt as well. Uh, well, we're actually stocked in all the National Trust sites in Sussex as well. So Sussex and into Kent. So if you're out and about, um, yeah, you'll start seeing the products. Um, they are in all the National Trust shops in Sussex. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of we're getting around. Fantastic. Janina, thank you so much for joining me today and all the best with In The Loop drinks. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And here's a reminder of that website address again. It's intheloopdrinks.co.uk. That's intheloopdrinks.co.uk. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. It's that time of year when we all start looking forward to the return of the sunshine and maybe booking that summer holiday. With the world continuing to open up to travellers again, should you go somewhere tried and tested or head off to your dream destination? Well, to give us some inspiration, I'm joined by East Grinstead-based travel counsellor Matt Newman. Matt, welcome to the show. Which destinations are you seeing the most interest in at the moment? Hi, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, it's well, it's been very, very tough travel over the last three years, so I think people's desire to get back and travel is is huge um i mean what i'm seeing for 2023 is quite interesting i mean greece which was popular last year as travel got back going is still definitely a, a big destination in europe and um i'm seeing a lot of interesting in greece 
I think um, Portugal is very much on the list. You're getting some really good value um, out in Portugal. Um, Lisbon, Porto, good cities, and uh, and the Algarve has always been a favourite with the Brits, but you know, you're getting some good value there. Um, interestingly, I'm seeing quite a bit of interest in, in Mauritius for sort of long-haul stuff. The Indian Ocean, always popular, Seychelles, the Maldives, but Mauritius is really quite quite good value and um and, and and certainly quite a lot cheaper um than the Maldives, Seychelles and uh so so that's certainly somewhere I'm seeing interest. Turkey, a uh, bit of a mainstay for the Brits as well, getting good value. The lira is pretty weak against the pound. So Turkey's certainly a destination I'm seeing interest in. Um, and you know, while we're on exchange rates and a long haul destination, South Africa always been pretty good value, but the Rand is pretty weak against the pound. So South Africa is a destination. Uh, long haul is definitely definitely on people's radar. And do you think value is the key thing that's driving demand for some of these destinations at the moment? I do think that. And obviously, with the cost of living and everyone's going through it, I think value is key. I um, mean, the cost of travel, like everything, has, has gone up post-COVID. Um, places, and I've, I've found, like, like the US, I, I found some of the costs of accommodation and, and car hire is really, really rocketed. Um, airfares have gone up, cost of fuel. So people are looking at value. I mean, value is always important for travel, but I, I think more so with the current economic situation, yeah. And you said that most of the destinations you're seeing are your traditional holiday destinations. How about things like you mentioned Mauritius that are up and coming destinations that perhaps we should have on our radar this year? Yeah, I think there's a couple actually. Um, Montenegro, um, up and coming, close to well, it's on the on the border with Croatia. Croatia's been popular for a number of years, but not not cheap. So Montenegro, you know, similar sort of landscapes to well Croatia, obviously, and, and Italy. So that's would be one destination. I think Costa Rica, long haul, has been. Uh, up and coming for a little while and they've done a really good job at managing their tourism they're they're big on the ecotourism and and seem to have been developing developing their tourism industry very ethically so costa rica is is certainly a, a destination and interestingly jamaica um within the caribbean is somewhere that people again have been going for a number of years but probably you know barbados st lucia maybe antigua have been places more um traditional for people to go to but but jamaica is certainly somewhere that is well worth considering both value wise and i think people have been slightly concerned with safety but um certain areas of jamaica have uh, are, are, are pretty safe and good to travel to now you mentioned costa rica and how they're selling themselves as an eco-friendly destination are people becoming more conscious of the impact that travel has on the environment? And are you seeing any shifts in behaviour as a result? I think it's, yeah, I mean, I I think people are more aware of it, whether it's uh, how many how many times they're flying and the carbon footprint and, and potentially hotels and places they stay. It's interesting. I mean, all-inclusive has become, you know, very big for a lot of the package, traditional package companies, but the impact on the local environment and local businesses concerns me personally. You know, people who are just flying into a hotel, they're eating all their food there, not necessarily venturing out much and spending their income in, in, in those areas. So, um, I mean, that's that's an area that for me is a little concern within the industry, how, how big all-inclusives has, has got. But I think people, and, and post pandemic as well people are conscious of how many times they fly and i think with the current economic situation that people are maybe reconsidering how many trips they do maybe traditionally they might have done a ski trip or gone away in summer and a, a few weekend breaks maybe people aren't going to travel quite as much maybe people are going to put a little bit more money into less trips which would then impact how many times they fly and um so so i people are are aware I, I think on the flip side people want to get away and i guess we can all be quite selfish can't we that you you want a holiday and and that's sort of the number one factor that maybe you're you're not thinking as much about uh your 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 impact on on the planet so yeah but i, I overall i think it's something people are are aware of yes 
So as a travel counsellor, what do you offer that somebody who's perhaps booking themselves can't easily do? Well, I think initially you've got a bit of protection. Booking sort of a, a holiday through a travel agent is giving you a lot of protection in regards to if anything went wrong. Um, we see it all the time, whether it's through strikes, uh, which is prevalent at the moment, the airports, um, anything that might happen weather related that you, you, you have protection uh, and I would always be on hand to help people. Um, every one of my clients has my, my phone number and, and WhatsApp uh, and it's very easy to access me. So I think in a, in, a, in a situation where something went wrong, that's when you often see benefits of, of using an agent, whether that be myself or, or someone else. Hopefully things don't go wrong uh, and I'm able to offer advice and experience over 25 years within the industry having visited many hotels and countries and used many different airlines. So I think from that side of it, it it, it can be very beneficial using an agent. You're not necessarily going to spend more, loads more money um, than you would do booking yourself. Um, but I think it depends on, on, on the trip. I mean, sometimes if people are just going to book a, book a cheap flight on Ryanair or EasyJet, then of course it's, it's, it's easy to do that online. Um, but I think for some of those more complicated trips, certainly tailor-made itineraries, um, it, it can be really reassuring speaking to someone and going through the planning process um, with, with someone that knows exactly what they're doing and the destinations and places to stay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I hate reverting back because we're all so fed up with it, aren't we? But, you know, COVID was a really difficult time for the travel industry but what it did do is remind people the benefit of using an agent um, whether it's getting through to someone which is notoriously difficult if you're booking online sometimes you can't even speak to anyone so having that person easily accessible to help you with those situations whether it's getting money back or making those changes uh, is really invaluable and, and that's been beneficial to certainly my industry off the back of COVID because we all worked so hard helping people out um, during those those tough few years we had. Now, you said you've been in the travel business for over 25 years. You must have been to some amazing destinations and had some great experiences. What are some of the ones that stand out for you? Oh, good question. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a perk of, perk of being in my industry and I've, you know, I've loved being in it. And, uh, and I had the you know, pleasure of traveling to many many parts of the uh, of the world i mean i mean i am i i like a bit of uh, adventure travel mixed in with a bit of luxury so for me places like southeast asia so thailand vietnam cambodia offer me the ability to do some sort of adventurous stuff whether that be um out on the water or potentially touring around and, and not necessarily just sat at a hotel but then also enjoying a few nights at a, at, a, at a luxurious property at the end of my trip I think that would be one of my ideal holidays um, I love the states I love Canada I think North America um, I mentioned earlier I mean definitely the prices have increased considerably but I think as a destination for holidays still works really really well um, Maldives is probably up there as one of my favourite places if you just want total R&R, &R, plenty of things to do water-wise. I, I, I love snorkelling, diving and um, windsurfing and, and, and various other water sports and, and that sort of ticks the box. So Maldives is, is definitely a place that I like. Closer to home, I was lucky to go back to Greece. I hadn't been back to Greece for a number of years and visited Greece last year with my family and i still think that it has so much to offer food wise beaches you've got the weather the culture that would be certainly one of my number one european destinations and how about places you've not yet been to that you're keen to go and explore <laughs> yeah i mean yeah the list is, is is always long you never quite tick everything off i mean on a uh, on a sort of adventurous way I'd, i've always wanted to go to bhutan and um, and also wanted to go to Mongolia, um, a bit out, out of the way, but those are two places that have always been on my list. Yeah, I'd like to. I would like to go back to New Zealand. And New Zealand, I visited many years ago, and and just see offers so much. 
obviously quite a long way away, but really as a destination and you've got maybe two to three weeks and New Zealand is a, is a fantastic place. Um, I mentioned it briefly earlier, I've, I've not been to Croatia and I'm, I'm hoping later in 2023 to get out to Croatia. I hear a lot of great things about the country and, um, and that will be somewhere a little bit closer to home that I'd like to get to. Do you find that when you're booking trips for people, you get a bit envious of some of the things that you have planned for them? No, it's a nightmare, Tim. Honestly, travel envy. I get it get it all the time when you suddenly book these lovely trips for people and you sort of would like to go jetting off to these these places. But that's that's part of part of what I do and uh and I really enjoy it, you know, and I really treat everyone's trip that I'm helping to organise as if it was my own. And I get a great deal of satisfaction from people going away and, and enjoying things. So uh and also helping them out with maybe getting upgrades at hotels and using my contacts in the industry to help people uh, really maximize their time away. But yeah, I get jealous and travel envy probably most days. So if people want to get in contact with you, maybe for some advice, or even to book a trip to make you more envious, uh, what's the best way to do that? That's that's great. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook, Matt Newman Travel. Uh, you can search me on Google um or feel free to reach out to me i will just drop me an email address if that's all right matt.newman at travelcounselors.com but just have a pop into google you can put my name in matt newman travel and uh, you get all my details that's great matt thanks so much for joining me and sharing some inspiration with us today many thanks tim take care have a good day and as a reminder, if you'd like some more inspiration or want to chat to Matt about your next holiday, you can email matt.newman at travelcounsellors.com. That's matt.newman at travelcounsellors.com. We'll pop that on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show a few weeks back, Paul Tolney spoke to local author Kizzy Petit about her new book and her journey to the UK. I am original from Venezuela. I moved to the UK um, eight years ago, almost nine. Wow. Um, yes, and I I am a journalist and a teacher in my country. Mm. But once I became a mom, I became a slow parenting advocate and a doula as well. So now my perception of life shifted after I became a mom. Yes. And and yes, that's that's why I promote uh, a slow-paced childhood. Mm. Yeah, I'm fascinated with I'm, nature. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this because you you you, you touch on it a lot in the book. Uh, so April's magical world and her joy for living slow. Tell us what exactly if people haven't heard of it what living slow actually is. Well, um, nowadays, because we are being bombarded by um, technological devices, uh, a slow-paced living approach is more and more important to embrace. Mm. And because children are growing disconnected from their own imagination, yeah, and and that was a very important uh, thing I wanted to to rescue. Because children need to uh, to live their own childhood and to grow up um, without being disturbed by adult intervention. Mm. So uh, you've you've created the series, uh, so stories of an unhurried childhood. Uh, so how much does that relate to your your own experience? Well, um, the four children's books are uh, a series that belong to stories of an unhorrid childhood, mm. which are, which they, they talk about the, the importance of raising children in tune with um, this lifestyle that leads to a more satisfying and sustainable kind of life, yeah. where you enjoy more things, and where you enjoy more and things are more interesting. Mm. You care for more, for, you care for others more. And you can appreciate more everything and everyone. Mm, of course. Because life is definitely better when when it's unrushed. Yes. For example, when you eat slowly, you can appreciate food at its at and its different flavors. When when you can 
when you walk, you can appreciate your surroundings and their features. Yeah. And the same applies to children as well. Um, during the first three years, uh, this is an age when tasks such as dressing themselves or eating with a fork um, might seem like very uh, difficult, but small children are already learning. Um, and this is what um, we adults don't, don't uh, usually understand. Mm. We want to um, rush them to grow. Yeah. And and we introduce unnecessary interference, either un either consciously or unconsciously, that mm. influence the learning process of young children. And and this can happen uh, when, for example, a well-intended parent who buys a treatable picture book of a, a, out of peda pedagogical enthusiasm mm. in order to teach the child as many new concepts as possible in a short time, mm. but another time speaks to the child in uh, baby language because it sounds so charming. Yeah, of course. Um, so when we, uh, my, my, my motivation, my inspiration is to nurture the, uh, children with loving and kind presence mm. so that they feel loved, confident, seen, and that they belong to a safe place where they matter, and most important, where they can freely and, and, and spontaneously express uh, the most precious innate gift from human experience, with, which is our creative imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's interesting, actually, because I, ne I never really thought about the concept of living slow, but I, I think I can kind of relate to it, because after the first... I think it was the first lockdown, I kind of appreciated, because I was living life at about 100 miles an hour, and I just appreciated the, the, the opportunity for the time to just stop and take stock of everything that was going on. Is, is that something yes. that's sort of, that, is that sort of the basis of it? Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's to educate. Uh, when we take this approach to life, we appreciate can enjoy it better. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. no, no, that's that's definitely true. So um, let's move on to the the book then. So April's Magical World and Her Joy for Living Slow. So tell us about um, April. Well, April is uh, my daughter. <laughs> she was the one who inspired me to write these four stories. Aww. And she introduces us to a joyful childhood filled with play in nature, a free imagination, and she interconnects uh, to all living beings. And uh, the book is written in rhymes, so mm. um, it's fun, and and also the illustrations are very vibrant and colorful. Um, so the book chronicles a glorious day of a childhood filled with play outside in nature, where April plays, uh, she paints, she goes out to meet other girls and boys and the adventures range from climbing trees to meeting a dinosaur a dragon and a unicorn while wow. also singing songs dancing collecting magic stones and building fairy homes sounds amazing and so so is this so this is the first in a series of books then yes this is the first book of a series okay and it's currently available um in the bookshop in East Greenstead, okay. also in the online websites of Waterstones and Blackwell. Oh, brilliant! So you've got it in quite a few in quite a few places then. Yes, yes, uh, it has been accepted by these two uh, big retailers. Yeah, they're hu huge retailers. They're, they're Waterstones and Blackwell. So that's brilliant, and it's also in our with our friends at the East Quincy Bookshop as well. That's all. That's great. So, how um, how long has it taken you, Tizzy, to to put this to put this one together? And then, obviously, there's going to be a, a, a few more to follow as well. Well, a bit more than four years ago, uh, I was listening to my then four-year-old daughter telling me all about her imaginary adventures at the back of her of our garden. And I was getting all these amazing stories from her imaginary adventures. 
And I then I soon realized that they were to be written mm. and like immortalized. So I connected to my passion for writing and turned her stories into a combination of real life events plus the magical imagination of my little one. And well, the result made me feel very proud of myself as I was writing rhyming stories in English, which is not my mother tongue. And I thought that these stories were uh, too good to be kept only for my daughter and myself. They needed to be out there for other, other children to enjoy as well, and also to educate parents about the infinite possibilities for fun that come with creativity and imagination. Mm. To, to bring to light all the marvelous things that children get to see when they slow down and really look at, listen, and experience the, the world around them in a much more mindful way. Because, Paul, you know what? Uh, it's, to me, it's very sad when I see children in, in their bogies and they have a tablet or a, or a, a phone on their hands. Yeah. Um, instead of looking at the trees Comple- and, and looking at the clouds. Everything. Yeah, completely oblivious to everything going on around them. Yes, yeah. completely unaware of what's happening around them. Yeah. And that's something that uh, I would like to uh, bring my, my own to help this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will. So hopefully uh, lots of people will uh, have a look and uh, get hold of a copy of the book. Let's, the illustri- I'm just looking at it on your, um, on your website, Tizzy. The illustrations are absolutely lovely with the, um, the blue door at the uh, East Court in uh, East Quinstead. So all the kids can go out and have a look uh-huh. at that. Uh-huh. Um, no, it's, it's really lovely. And so obviously it's amazing what children's, uh, um, children's imaginations can, can you know, open up. Um, what, what are your hopes then for the for the for the book that you, that you'll get people to to just open up and just have a look at and embrace the world around them? Yes, my my hope is that people can understand that slowing down and not being so uh, crushed in life uh, can can provide so many benefits for their own health and for their um, parenting approach as well. Mm, definitely. I, re- I, think, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. I certainly can. Chrissy, real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and we wish you all the best with the book. Thank you so much, Paul. Kizzy Petit in conversation there with Paul Tolmy. As a reminder, April's Magical World is available from the bookshop in East Grinstead or online from Waterstones and Blackwells as well as aprilsmagicalworld.com. That's aprilsmagicalworld.com. We'll post a link to the website on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. This week on Wellbeing Weekly, Carrie Overton spoke to Ashley Salter about her New Year's resolutions. Um, it usually involves overindulgence at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't drink alcohol. I haven't done for three years, so it's right. not anything like uh, dry January mm-hmm. or things like that. It's usually um, a little bit of a fuller middle uh, yeah. where my trousers don't fit quite as well <laughs> as they did before the Christmas season. Yep. <laughs> uh, so it's usually that kind of thing. Moving more uh, is usually what I try and do. Mm. Um, but with the, the weather as it is, especially today, that yeah. makes it quite tricky. So mm. it's, yeah, it's um, trying to remember and finding ways to stick to those New Year's resolutions. Yeah. And, and how are you at sticking to them? What works for you? Um, I think over the years, I've learned more and more about it. So, mm. I, you know, before I used to, two weeks in, probably stop. And I think that's a, a standard response yeah. for a lot of people. Um, I'm sure you'll you'll tell us as the show goes on. But um, as I've learned more, I've learned ways to, to try and make them stick better mm. and to, um, yeah, to th- keep them in the forefront of your mind, yeah. I think. And how do you do that? Um, a technique I learned recently, which has definitely helped with habits um, and in making them stick, yeah. is to attach them to another habit that you already do. Right. So, for example, you know, although waking up is not necessarily a habit as such, mm. but I suppose maybe the time of the day is, um, it's drinking a glass of water when you first wake up. Right. Or it's when you get into work or you sit down at your desk, you have a glass of water with you and you, you drink it at that time. Right. And then you know that something like that 
an easy win if if a habit that you're trying to make is right. drinking more water is done. You know, you've got those uh, points in the okay. day where you you have that time you're attaching it to something that you already do. Right. And then so it, you it already you want to drink more water, but you you know that you will get up or get in your car or sit at your desk, whatever, and you attach it to that thing you do regularly. Yeah, that's right. Or when you, you know, when you start making dinner, have yeah. a glass of water and then make your dinner. And yeah. that's, uh, that's a good way to, to make things stick. Oh, that's really, there we go. We're off to a <laughs> flying start already. So if people, obviously you're a health coach, so yeah. you deal a lot with um, people's lifestyles and, and diets and nutrition. Yeah. And, and often when you talk to people about resolutions, for a lot of people, it is to do with fitness and health and nutrition. Yes. Resolutions. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of resolutions that aren't that. I mean, ultimately, they're all to do with well-being one way or another, aren't they? Even if it's sort of yeah. watching your how much time you spend in work that's still good for your well-being isn't it yeah so, yeah. so most of them are so if people are sitting at home and thinking oh I'm not somebody who makes lots of resolutions what could they do if they're feeling in that post-Christmas slump eating a bit too much maybe drunk a bit too much haven't moved as much as normal mm. have you got some sort of power actions some things that if people did nothing else but these it would help them to be that little bit healthier feel a bit better the three I think I'll mention three or four but the overarching sort of theme is to generally just focus on being healthier and then the the other things will follow like for example if your new year's resolution is to lose weight Mm. or to look younger or I don't know get a six-pack for Mm. example Mm. um if you're focusing on those things alone that you know that is harder to achieve than mm. just focusing on being healthier right and when you're focusing on being healthier those things will follow right so the first thing that everyone can do is to cut down on processed food and eat more whole foods um, yeah. and it's that simple change that will give your body more nutrition mm. um, it will give it calories that are worth something mm. you can have a chocolate bar you can get those calories you know people get fixated with having 2,000 calories a day for women and 2,500 for men or reducing them drastically to lose weight Mm. and they get fixated on calories but you know having that chocolate bar that's I don't know say 350 calories that's a meal that you could have had with actual nutrition right um whereas the chocolate bar is just it's stealing nutrition from your body it takes more from your body than it's being given the amount of sugar that that comes from a chocolate bar Mm. um it's your body requires it takes stores of nutrients vitamins and minerals that are stored in your body that you've you've given it and it takes those to digest and deal with the sugar and put it through your liver and get it through your digestive system and ultimately uh, ultimately to eliminate it but it it takes nutrients from you to do it so actually it's not just the sort of oh it's bad to take all the sugar in but it Mm. actually depletes the good things that are in your body already yeah so you would say to people it's trying to eat things that are in the most natural form possible or have had the least amount of process all of those things that keep you fuller for longer so Mm -hmm. refined things like white bread white pasta um, even white potatoes you know they are um, more quickly digested by the body right um, which then gives you a a blood sugar spike and you can get into a whole different world of um, insulin things and the the risk the health risks that come from having your blood sugar too high and then right. it goes too low and by eating a whole food diet it keeps your blood sugar more stable more consistent so what was your second piece of advice for everyone a uh, second piece of advice is um drink more water right um so essential for everything down to a cellular level um you know your cells each individual cell is largely made up of water and you need water within the cells and surrounding the cells to make sure that you have all the correct mineral balances in your body which help your cells to deal with all of the the things that are coming into your body you know the food that you that you Mm. have all the chemicals that come in alcohol um, the things that you put on your skin all of those things need to be dealt with and water is the essential part of dealing with everything that comes in and out how much water should people aim 
to be drinking every day? Roughly two litres. It depends, you know, there's lots of things that say it depends on the size of the person and the activity levels. Obviously, if you're very active and you're doing more, drink more. Mm -hmm. Um, But generally, especially, you know, in the winter, people think they can get away with drinking less because they're not doing as much and it's not hot outside. Mm. But actually the heating system inside just completely dries you out. Right. Um, So drinking... As ah, much or that's more. That's interesting. Because you would yeah. think, oh, in the summer it makes sense to drink more. But yeah. just being inside and in the heating and things, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So if people can have herbal teas and, and decaf, things that aren't yeah. caffeinated, herbal things, water with fruit or something to flavour it. Yeah. What if people don't drink much? What techniques can you suggest for people to get to them try, to drink yeah. more? I always tell clients and anyone that I see to... Um, have a glass of water when they wake up because if you if you think about it logically your brain needs a lot of water and mm. overnight you've been sleeping for six to eight hours mm. um eight preferably right um and you haven't been drinking in that time mm. so all of those you know six to eight hours you're you've not been giving any more fluid to your brain and your body's had to function on the water that it had from the day before so giving it a top up first thing in the morning is a really good way to rehydrate the body and give yourself actually a burst of energy. Am I right in thinking, I'm sure I read somewhere that people say that Mm. one of the first signs of thirst can be hunger, that you think you're hungry. Is that true? Yes, I think this was a book written in America. 30% of people are overweight because they mistake the thirst cue for hunger. So they eat instead of drinking. So what, you know, a piece of advice that I would give is to have a glass of water and wait 20 minutes. And then if you're still hungry, then have something Mm. but usually it is thirst what else can people do these power actions that people can take to help them feel more healthy this year so I think uh, moving more and uh, you know a lot of people get triggered by the word exercise so Mm. I don't like to call it exercise but moving more anything you know anything counts Uh, one squat is better than no squats in Mm. in my opinion Mm. so you know, um, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Yes. Um, he talks a lot about uh, five-minute actions. Five-minute things can make all the difference. And if you do them daily, they make um, an impact. And if you're not mobile, if you're not able to, go and sit in nature. That mm. will have benefits on your your brain and, and mm. for your health, mm. you know, if you can't move. So are there any other top tips that you want to share with people yeah just a bonus tip um take yourself on holiday every day and it's it's just you know spend again it's like a five minute thing it can be longer but do something for you do something that you enjoy brilliant thank you so much for coming on today it's been really interesting and so just to summarize those those well the bonus one have a daily holiday even if it's only for five minutes and then it was cut down on processed food yep stay hydrated drink more water and get moving yes thank you so much for coming in it's been absolutely brilliant that was carrie overton talking to ashley salter on this week's wellbeing weekly if you'd like to know more ashley can be contacted through templehealth.co.uk that's templehealth.co.uk We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On her Open for Business show this week, Samantha Day found out all about personal styling from fashion expert Ellie Cooper-Simpson. I am a personal stylist. I work with lots of different people, um, men and women of all different ages, and people come to me for lots of different reasons. I take people personal shopping. That's probably what a lot of people know me for best. But I also do colour and body shape analysis. It's the building blocks of personal styling to know your colour, the colours that suit you and your skin tone and to understand which styles and silhouettes will really suit your body shape. So that's where I begin with each client. Um, And that's a really fun service. Some people do it on their own, but it's really nice to do it with friends because you learn so much from watching your friends learn their own colours that that helps you to kind of understand your own even if you're not the same colour season. So you'll either be a summer, a winter, a spring or an autumn. um, And you'll find that out as we do the draping process. And then I do wardrobe edits as well. That's a lovely kind of cleansing detox service. Um, A lot of people like it this time of the year. I come to your home and we look at your wardrobe together 
And using the Colour and Body Shape service and what we found out from that, we look at your clothes together and I will help you to keep the ones that really work for you. I'll show you how to use those in many different ways as well, maybe that you haven't thought of before. Sometimes that's by adding accessories into your wardrobe um, or just realizing that that color with that color actually looks great um, and helping you to really make your wardrobe versatile. Um, and then we also look at clothes that we can rehome to other people that maybe you're not using um, or you haven't worn for a couple of years and so someone else can make use of those clothes. That's a really good idea, isn't it? It's about creating a wardrobe for you, for each client individually, which you enjoy opening the doors to in the morning and removing anything negative. It's actually one of my favourite services to do because it really changes the way you look at your wardrobe. Although you're not adding anything at that stage, you're learning about what really works for you. And you learn to look at your clothes in a different way. Do you find some of your clients say, oh, I can't get rid of that because I want to lose a bit of weight to get into it? Absolutely. And I'm exactly the same. <laughs> and, and then also you have people like myself who my weight fluctuates, you know, and I know actually right now I'm probably the slimmest I've been in about three years. But I also know that I might put that weight on again if I can't get to the pool so much to swim or you know what maybe I'm going to have a few extra chocolate digestive biscuits through the winter um and so I might keep that size up of jeans as well and that's okay but what we do is we remove those items from where you're looking at every day in your wardrobe and that might be in a storage bag um under your bed or it might be in a storage bag in the loft so that actually what you're looking at is just giving you positivity every day and choices that are actually usable for you mm. what we don't want to be doing is pulling out pieces in the morning which don't fit or don't make us feel great because that's not giving us a positive start to our day and when I work with my clients it's really all about making the client feel positive when they get dressed whether they're getting dressed for work or whether they're getting dressed to go out with the girls or go out with the lads or you know go out for date night it just wants to be a positive experience it's positive that you could say to me that's the color you need to wear and that's the color you need to wear absolutely and this is where color analysis is such an important point um and a, a real building block of learning how to dress yourself to really feel amazing because it's not just about looking great it's also about feeling great and when we complete a color analysis I don't just look at the drapes myself I talk to the client about why a drape has a certain effect on the skin tone and what we're looking for when we do the draping process is light and shadow and if a drape creates light onto the face and you have an even skin tone and your eyes are as bright as they can be and your mouth is looking full and pink, that is positive. That's what we want. And then the negative colors for you will create shadow. So for me, I am a warm skin tone, so I'm a spring. And the summer and winter colors, which are cool, will create shadows. They make me look quite drawn. They can make me look very, very pale. They can also make my eyes look quite small and create shadow under my eyes um, and also under and around the chin. So it's really, really important to get those colours that we wear on our top half correct to really enhance our face. Because mm. when you meet someone, when you're talking to someone, it's really important that they engage with your face. Now, when did you start this business? Back in 2018, I think. Gosh, I can't remember. It was, <laughs> do you know, it's gone so quickly. And I think with COVID having broken it up, um, I've, it was about 2017, 2018. But I was really fortunate in that I was able to go and retrain at the London College of Style. And I'd already had an interest in fashion for many, many years back to my school days. So that wasn't new for me, but the way in which styling can make a difference to your entire life, to every aspect of your life, 
Um, it's not just about the clothes. It's about what the clothes do for you. It's a feel-good factor, isn't it? It is, absolutely. It's a feel-good factor. It's a confidence factor. It's a self-esteem factor. Um, for some people, it's about finding themselves again. So to learn all this and feel like I could take this skill, all these skills that I'd learned and be able to work with clients and help them feel positive about themselves was an amazing feeling. So I started my business and it's been incredible. I couldn't have hoped for any more. I'm, I'm just delighted to be working with the clients that I have. And one of the highlights for me of being a stylist is I'll see a client and we'll complete their service and they process that service. And then they come back to me kind of usually within a day or two. And they'll say, you know, it's not just the clothes. You've made such a difference to me. And those reviews about themselves as people and the way they see themselves and maybe the confidence boost or they've been out and had a couple of compliments that they've never had before. It's that that makes my job so much fun and so worthwhile to me. Were you always, perhaps when you were a lot younger, interested in textures and clothing and that type of thing? Absolutely. So I loved, I absolutely loved clothes growing up. Um, in fact, my mum used to make me clothes when I was younger. Um, and they were always dresses and they had patterns and, you know, full skirts. They were so beautiful. And I think I learned so much from that. And that really inspired me to take textiles at school where we did lots of different sewing. Um, but I made a beautiful dress. I was very proud of it for my stepfather's niece. It was a GCSE project. So it was over a period of, I think, six months coursework that I did this piece. And I really enjoyed it. I'd never done anything quite like that before. I think we kind of made, you know, you'd made napkins at, at a lower <laughs> level or something like that. You know, let's learn to sew, girls. So we do that. But actually being able to make a dress and have a model who it was for. And she was excited about it. I think she was about seven. I can't remember exactly. And I was, I remember going shopping for the fabrics. And I remember walking into the shop with my mum and the colours and the textures of the fabrics. And of course, it took me so long to choose the fabrics. Um, <laughs> but I chose organza was one of the fabrics and then a satin to go under it. And I created this balloon style skirt um, at the base of the dress with some fabric petals inside. And I remember when my model put the dress on, she was picking up the skirt to look at it and feel it. And it was a real sensory experience. And actually for children, I think that's great. You know, we see children's clothes now, don't we, with with um, sequins on that, that you can make matte or shiny. And we see um, bobbles and all these sensory, all lovely sensory experiences within their clothes, which is just so lovely for them. But clothes are so much more than items that we wear. They oh, really are um, for so many different reasons and they can make differences to your life in so many different areas. You've said that you also style men. Is that Absolutely. How Absolutely. does that go? It's a very different service. You still have a colour and, and body shape and you still can do a wardrobe edit and you still do a personal shop. But what happens within that time we're together is incredibly different. Women like to browse a bit after trying on items I've pre-selected. That's really quite normal. That doesn't happen with men so much. Although as a personal stylist, I do like to help to teach people how to shop for themselves without me. Because that's a really important part of being a stylist, is giving people tools that they can use when you're not there. And that gives them confidence to buy things themselves, which is really, really important. So... You have to encourage a male client to maybe and maybe just take 10 minutes to do that. And depending on the client will depend on which shops you go to as well. With male styling, you're giving a man a toolbox they have in their wardrobe to create outfits easily every day. Items that work really easily together. So you don't have to spend time thinking, does that go with that? Does that go with that? And that's another thing about personal styling. You don't want to be given clothes during a shop you're never going to wear that stylist has to really 
understand your lifestyle, understand your personality, um, understand how you use your clothes. What do you want to gain from your clothes? From a male client, that's usually even more important. Please make it as simple as possible, but I want to look sharp. So you might be then adding in some textures and layering and teaching men that can be really lovely because it usually adds a different dynamic to what they're used to to their wardrobe. What is the most important part to you? The most important part is definitely making a positive change to my clients' lives because that enables them to make other changes in their life. When a new client comes to me, they will always have a reason to have made that step to committing to asking me to style them. And I would like that client to leave that service, process what they've got from it, and be able to come back to me and say, thank you, I achieved my goal. And it really is, for me, it's about making people feel really, really good. Ellie Cooper-Simpson chatting there to Samantha Day on Open for Business this week. If you'd like to find out more about Ellie's services, visit inspiringstylebyellie.co.uk. That's inspiringstylebyellie.co.uk. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.